Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. We've been in Ephesians for the last few weeks, and and we're finishing up chapter 1. And we're going to be in Ephesians until we finish it, um, probably through the spring. And remember what we talked about last week, that uh, what we want to do as we're looking at this book, in fact, what we want to do every Sunday when we gather is we just want to stare into the face of our Lord as He reveals Himself to us through the Scriptures. I really want you to see that if Crosspoint is your home church, or if you're visiting here, that we, we are Bible people. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that he wanted to bleed Bible. And we don't start with a premise. We don't start with a problem, like some topic that we engage in our life and then kind of go to the Bible and cherry-pick verses around to see how that might help us navigate through life a little bit more wisely or pragmatically. I think that's a very a man-centered way of approaching the Christian faith of the Bible. That's not what we do. What we want to do is we want to work through the Bible, work through books of the Bible, and we want to stare at this beautiful jewel that is the Bible, and we just want to stare at it and stare at it and stare at it until we see Jesus. And for those of us that are Christians, that should break forth into worship and adoration and affection, which then informs all of the things that we need to do in life. It, it, actually, it actually doesn't then detach us and make us less wise or unable to handle individual topics and circumstances. It actually then postures us for the only place where we need to be to handle life with, through the lens of who God is. And if you're not a Christian here today, and listen, I'm going to put my cards on the table. I do not think that all of you in this room are Christians. We have a large group of people in here, and I think that there are some people in here who realize they're not. You know you're far from God, and you're maybe just you came here by invitation, and you're, you're hoping that maybe you can hear something that might give you hope, and some of you think you're Christians, and you're not. And, and today, I want you as well to stare into the face of just truths about God, and I want it to become so beautiful and irresistible to you that you, you cannot help but love Him. That's how God saves people. He doesn't command them to obey Him and demand from them begrudging submission. No, that's not what God is after. He's after worship and joy and His glory, and He wants to make Himself altogether lovely to you. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to stare at this beautiful prayer for the church. I've got three very simple, rather elementary thoughts and truths that I think these, this prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesians should teach us, and then some application, and then that's it. And then me and my dad are going to go watch the San Diego Chargers. <laughs> Beat the Bears. Yeah, all right, okay, all right. Well, let, me, let me read Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. And uh, as I read, just let the beauty of these words, this is God's word. This is not man's words about God. This is God's word to man about himself. Let's read and then I'll pray. And then we'll get into it. Paul writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, 
remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his right according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for these words. I do pray for my brothers and sisters in this room who have already trusted in you, that you would stir our affections. Lord, even though we have been born again, many of us, we still battle idols. And we still feel the tug of the flesh and the world and things that crowd in and compete for our heart's affection. Would you recalibrate our vision so that we might see in 2020 the things that you have done for us? Lord, for people in this room who are not yet believers in Jesus. Lord, would you be so kind as to cause them to pass from spiritual death to spiritual life, from trusting in themselves or coddling some broken counterfeit pleasure and sin. Would you cause them to turn and trust in Jesus? And Lord, would you be gracious to me as I offer very fragile and weak thoughts on such a glorious subject. I need your help. I'm a crooked stick. My life is full of anxieties and hypocrisy and and, and I'm still very much in process. And so would would you draw a straight line with this crooked stick today for the sake of your people and your glory. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, well, we're going to work through these verses very briefly, and then we're going to settle on three truths that I think these things teach us, and then we're going to make some application for our lives. First, I want you to see there in just the first couple of verses that, that Paul gives thanks for the Ephesians, and he gives thanks for them for two reasons, because he sees in them faith in the Lord Jesus, and then he also sees in them love for the saints. And so that, that should mark, that's what should mark the Christian church is just this faith. We have a, we're people of faith. We love Jesus. That's what our whole reason for being is, is loving Jesus. And then this actually produces it. It works through us to make us loving people. And that's one thing I just love about being here at Crosspoint is there's not these strange little sort of pockets of, of, of rivalry or church backbiting. You know, it's just so far, Lord, 
Lord's been good to us. I mean, we've got another 34 years to go here, Lord willing, on my watch. I mean, it could take, take a left turn real quick, but, but by God's grace, we're just, you know, it's just a, a joy and a, and a genuine love for one another. And Paul gives that as, as a, a real mark of the Ephesians' faith. And then he says in verse 17, now here's what, here's what I want you to see before we really get into looking at what this scripture is teaching us. He says in verse 17, and this is his prayer for the Ephesians. He's praying for them that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And so what we have, remember last week how we talked about the Trinity, the God is, uh, reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Really there in verse 17, you see the Trinity at work again. You have God the Father, you have the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then where it says there may give you a spirit, R- really most commentators would think that that would be, that's really referring more to the Holy Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit, not that he would give our spirit, small s, but that the Holy Spirit, he would give us the Holy Spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And so what's happening here is that Paul is praying that God, the Trinity, God the Father, over the Son, by the Spirit, would give us this knowledge of him, that we would see him. I mean, I think that's very instructive, that he's not praying that we would have three little steps on how to, uh, how to navigate through life better, or four lessons on how Jesus will make you a better CEO, or five lessons. I mean, he, what he wants us to see is not some tip for living better just here in this earth, but the first thing before we get to the application of that is he wants us just to see him. He wants us to have the knowledge of God. And then there's three things that he specifically plays, prays for that we would see in as we, get, as we see this knowledge of Jesus. So let's look at those things. In verse 18, he says that our eyes would be enlightened. First, that we would know what is the hope to which he has called us. We spent the last three or four weeks looking at God's sovereign adopting grace in the first 14 verses of Ephesians 1. And what Paul is directly referring to there is he's saying, hey, that should give you great hope. Because when you begin to realize that you did not save yourself, that God set his love on you because he loves you, and God predestined his people for adoption through Jesus Christ, when we wrestle with that really enormous truth, And it's okay to wrestle with that. But when we wrestle with that and we settle on that in our hearts, that produces a hope and confidence in us because our hope is solely in God's grace, not in our effort that made us a Christian. I was a young lieutenant in the Army. In fact, that's what brought me here to Columbus, Georgia. I went to training here at Fort Benning. I was stationed at Fort Stewart. And uh, my commander was a Cajun guy by the name of Colonel Honore. He later became a general, and he was the, uh, like, somebody, I guess, President Bush appointed him to be sort of the commander of the government response to Hurricane Katrina, and so you may have seen him on the news. He was on Fox News and CNN uh, nightly there for a while as a general, and uh, just real honorary guy. I mean, he, he would, you know, the reporters would ask him a question, and he would look at him in this Cajun accent, and he had 
he had a cigar. He was, every time I saw him, I'd see him at 4.30 in the morning for PT. He'd have a cigar. And I think he actually had it surgically stitched onto his lip. I mean, the guy slept with a cigar. He woke up in the morning, ran PT with a cigar. And he was having these press conferences at Hurricane Katrina, and reporters would ask him some silly question. He'd look at him on national TV, and he'd say, don't get stuck on stupid. I mean, he was just, he was rough. Well, I knew him back in the early 90s as a colonel. And um, woe to the young lieutenant who uh, Colonel Honore would find in the motor pool or out, you know, out in some outpost and he would w- drive up like, you know, Patton on his Humvee and he would descend and he would come to your little battle position and say, what's your plan, Lieutenant? And I think one time I said, well, this is my plan. It was a pretty good plan. And he said, well, wh- what happens if that doesn't happen? And then I said, well, if that doesn't happen, then I hope. And he, the one time actually he, he threw down the cigar and he looked at me and he said, Lieutenant, hope is not a strategy in the United States Army. <laughs> and I, I just wanted to dig a hole in the ground and crawl under it and cover myself with the dirt. But now, and then actually a couple years later, he came and spoke at an event here um, after he retired at, at this leadership forum here at, in Columbus. And I went up and met him, and I just wanted, I didn't have the courage to say because I was still kind of scared of him. But now that I know more about the Bible, I wanted to say, hope may not be a strategy in the United States Army, but let me tell you something, Colonel Honore. Hope is a strategy for the Christian. In fact, that's what Paul is praying that we would have and see our hope Not in ourselves, not in our own ability, but in the sovereign grace of God. And once you press through that and wrestle with that, it brings you into this release and joy and unbelievable confidence that God saved you because he saved you. And he didn't save you because you were lovely or because you were middle class or because you were white or because you were Republican or because you were Democrat or because your daddy was a preacher or because you are a preacher or because you know the books of the Bible. He didn't save you for any reason other than because he loves you. And that produces hope. And it grounds us then to live the way he's called us to live. And so the first thing that Paul prays for them is that they would have hope. They would see this hope through which he has called us. And then the second thing is, keep going in verse in verse, seven, in verse 18, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And then this is interesting here. This is a really interesting little phrase. He says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, this is an interesting sentence because, let's read that slowly. He says, I pray that you would see, okay, this hope to which he's called you. And then what are the riches of his, God's, glorious inheritance in the saints. So we could read this two ways. Is this inheritance God's or is this inheritance ours, right? So is this something that he wants us to see our inheritance in God or is he wanting to see the fact that we are God's inheritance? And it's kind of split down the middle on this and come to either way. It's rich and it's awesome and it's true. But I think probably what's going on here is that he's wanting us to see that this inheritance that Paul wants us to see, it's us we are God's inheritance. We, the saints, God, so God loves us. Not because he needed us. Not because the Trinity in eternity past was bored and they were lacking anything. And so when time came, they just decided, well, we've kind of ran out of fellowship with each other. So let's create the earth so that we can, you know, this, this isn't the end of Jerry Maguire. This is not like we 
the Trinity bursts into the door and stares us down and says, you complete me. That's not what I'm going at here. This is just a picture of God's love, is that he loves his people so much that we, he calls us his inheritance. He delights in his people. Like we, God takes joy in receiving us as his inheritance. That is, I mean, that is, that is encouraging. And then finally, he, he prays this last thing, which will sort of inform the three points that I want us to settle down in here. In verse 19, he says that, okay, after he's prayed that we see this hope, he wants us to just revel in this glorious inheritance. Again, you could look at that both ways, that we're God's inheritance, and certainly we have a great inheritance in him. But verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of, of his power toward us who believe. And so Paul wants us to see three things there. He wants us to see this knowledge of God. He wants that knowledge of God to really come in three aspects. He wants us to see the hope to which he's called us, this inheritance, that we are God's inheritance. And then he wants us to see this power that is at work for his people. Let's keep reading there in verse 20. It says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So I want you to notice this before we, we move on to looking at three things that I think this passage teaches us and then make some application. Do you realize here that when Paul is appealing and praying for us to see the greatness of the power of God, he zeroes in on the picture of that as being the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, think about that. He doesn't say, look into the heavens and see how beautiful creation is. He doesn't say, look you know, at, at some beautiful creature. He doesn't appeal to some sort of natural display of the creation of God's power. But he's pointing towards the fact that God's power is most clearly seen in the resurrection, friends. Which means that that's the height of God's power and that is the point of Christianity, it's not just sort of the thing that God has instituted to get us out of the sin problem. I want you to see that. Far too many Christians have this very anemic view of the heart of Christianity, which is the resurrection of Jesus. And we sort of instinctively, I think, because we live in a culture that dumbs it down, we think of Jesus' work on the cross as either the beginning of Christianity then it's sort of this necessary act by God to procure our salvation, and then we move on to bigger and better things. Or we see it as a sort of, a sort of you know, deal that God had to institute as a reaction to human sin. Friends, that's not the way the Bible presents God's work in, on the cross through Christ. He presents it as the reason for which all things exist. It is the culminating act of God's display. And until you revel in and see the centrality of Jesus' work on the cross as being the beginning, the middle, and the end of all things, you will miss, you will miss, you will miss the heart of God and the point of the Bible and the reason why we are created. 
So Jesus doesn't just come along as a sort of second plan B because we fell. No, before the foundations of the earth, the lamb was slain, the Bible says. God planned this. We read it in Ephesians 1. He planned this. He predestined us for adoption before time began. And so everything in the world, everything has been pointing towards this cumulative, beautiful, final, consummating display of God's greatness and power in the resurrection of the Son. And then this power now is specifically at work for those who believe. And this power now that has raised Christ from the dead and now has seated him in heaven at his right hand in a position of all rule and authority is now, listen to this, is now directed towards his people, specifically filling his church. Let's look at three truths that I think this prayer teaches us. And listen, I'm going to tell you right away, if you're, if you're gearing up for these three truths, like there's some sort of really incredible, wise statements. These are, this is, this is, this is Southern California, El Centro California, uh, public school level, this is English as a second language. This is, it, you can get this, right? Right? You can get, th- th- these are not earth-shattering truths, but they are, I think, unbelievably encouraging and profound. I'm going to go through them quickly, then we're going to make application. The first is, is that God is all-powerful. God is all-powerful. You see that? He defeated death. He could do whatever he wants. He's the creator of everything. And God defeats death and sin and our enemy and all of its consequences. And he chose to do it before time began, even allowing sin and evil to come into the picture so that his power might be more vividly displayed and adored through Jesus' death and resurrection. God is all-powerful. Secondly, We're going to whittle this down here a little bit. God's power is most clearly seen in the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, think about that. God's power, I I just just touched on that a second ago. God does not want us to look at the stars or the some amazing telescope and some you know, scientific laboratory. He doesn't want us to look at the Grand Canyon, or he doesn't want us to marvel at the the, you know, the, the foot of the Himalayas at his great creative power. He wants us most primarily to see his power through the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. It's not a sort of secondary thing. It is, the, it is the, not only the way by which we come to know him, it is also the grand marvel of everything. And thirdly, God works his power, listen to this, God works his power specifically for the, God works his power. He works his power no matter what, all the time for everybody. But God works his power for the good of his people, which is the church. 
All right, so those three truths, and really we could put them all together in one sentence. God is all-powerful, and we see this most evidently and clearly in the resurrection, and that power he works for his people, which is the church. So what does this mean for our lives? Well, first of all, for, for all Christians, do you see the centrality and the necessity of the local church? I mean, I know you guys are here right now. I mean, you're like, yeah, we get this, Brad. But I mean, really, do you see... We live in the land where there is a church literally every mile or two. And a strange thing has sort of happened in the Bible Belt where actually I think the view of the local church is diminished because it has become sort of a side cultural institution rather than the God-ordained biblical body of Christ. And so we kind of have this mentality where we can just, you know, the church is just sort of a cultural thing. I can go from church to church, blah, blah, you know, do my thing, you know. Uh, this preacher may be mad, and you know I don't like the choir over there, and the music's over here. Everybody's got a story. Everybody got a story about four or five churches that they've just cycled through. And do you realize what kind of this culture, cultural sort of low view of the church has produced in us? It's produced in us, and many of us, a very, a very, very unbiblical view. It says here that this is the thing that Jesus fills. All in all. Jesus is the head of the church. The church is his body. And the church is the fullness of Jesus. And he fills it in every way. What defines a church? A church is a group of people that have committed to meet together, to hear the regular preaching of God's word, to practice the ordinances that Jesus commanded the church to do, which is water baptism and the Lord's Supper, and who submit themselves to godly authority. That's what a local church is. It takes many different expressions. Uh, it takes many different flavors, but a local church is a group of people who have committed themselves together under the right preaching of God's word to do what Jesus has commanded them to do, observe the ordinances of water baptism and communion, and carry out his mission, submitting themselves to qualified leadership. It's not three kids sitting together in a coffee shop. It's not a Bible study. It's not a parachurch ministry. It's not teen advisors. It's not young life. It's not, it's not your college ministry. It's old people and young people. It's babies and 80-year-olds. It's black people and white people. It's Mexican people and Italian people. It's, it's, it's Asian people, and it's people who are, have been raised, have never left Columbus, Georgia. It's Auburn fans and Georgia fans. It's, it's USC fans, and it's Army fans. It's Navy people. It's Navy people. Right there, we've got somebody here this was in the Navy, and we're going to beat you guys in a couple weeks. But it's, it's this beautiful, right, it's this, it's this beautiful mix. It's people that like hymns and people that like guitars. It's people that like pastors that read their sermons, and it's people that like pastors that beat on the pulpit. It's, it's this beautiful, beautiful mess. That God calls together not to be a sort of homogenous demographic or slice of the culture, but to be a beautiful representation to point culture that is broken towards what heaven is going to look like when there is every tribe and every tongue and every type of people. Big people, small people, smart people, less than smart people, fast people, slow people, white people, black people, brown people, yellow people. All sorts of people will come together and each local church, which is part of the bigger universal body of Christ, should look like that and we should pursue that and that's what our church is. And it is the thing 
that God has instituted on this earth to display his glory. So friend, if you have neglected the local church, or if you have not really given your heart to the local church, I plead with you to do that. Don't dwell on some past hurt. Listen, we've all got bad experiences. Don't dwell on some past hurt and let that define the rest of your life. Give yourself to the very thing that God has said He fills all in all. I'm going to say this, and this is going to be a shot across the bow. Some of you need to hear this. The New Testament has no category for a Christian who is unconnected to a local body of believers. I'm not adding anything to salvation. I'm not saying you have to be a member of a local church to be saved. I'm just saying that the New Testament has no category for Christians who do not have the local fellowship of believers, the local assembly, local church as primary in their life. For the anxious and weary Christian, let's move on. For the anxious and weary Christian, what do these three truths mean to us? Oh, this is good news when we think about God's power and we think about how it's seen in his triumph over evil on the cross and how it works for us. We should understand God's good providence, that it is for us and that this should bring us great comfort. For those of us that are weary and that have, our life has been racked with bad circumstances or sickness or trial and tragedy, we can remember as we stare into this verse that God exerts his power toward his people. But here's the rub, here's the catch. God exerts his power oftentimes very differently than we do. We have this very man-centered notion of power when we want it exercised on our behalf. And so we could read these verses and say, okay, well, God is all-powerful. I agree with that, Brad. So that means that God could get me out of this situation. Why doesn't he? And so then that can send us away discouraged because although we would agree that God is all-powerful, we have our preconceived notion on how God should work that power on our behalf. But do you see when you read the scriptures, you get a different picture of how God often chooses to work his power. Can he part the Red Sea? Yes. Can he make birds fall from the sky to feed his people? Yes. Can he do those things? Yes. Can he bring dead people back to life? Yes. But most often, God works in the hearts of his people to display his power in a more, a more mysterious, hidden sort of way so that they will prefer him over the circumstances. This is what J.I. Packer, the, the British theologian, says. He says in his beautiful book, Knowing God, somewhere in there, or maybe it's in some other meditation he wrote, but it's one of my favorite quotes. He says, and still God seeks the fellowship of his people and sends them both joy and sorrow to detach their hands from the things of this world and attach those hands to himself. So do you see how, how really subversive God often displays his power? By even sending trial and tragedy into the lives of his people so that they will not cling to the things of this earth. Because see, even if God got us out of a situation, we've still only got 40 or 50 years here in this life. And so what does God do when he just answers all of our prayers right then the way we want them to be re-answered? Well, God, maybe in those situations, shows himself to be good. But what happens most of the time is then we orient ourselves back down onto the answer or the blessing or the thing, and we coddle that rather than God. 
And God wants to go beyond that. He wants to go eternal with the display of his power. Because he's not just interested in getting out of a, a fix for these 40 or 50 years. He's interested in creating love and worship for eternity. And so God often, friends, if there's nothing else you get out of this, know that God is for you, anxious and weary Christian. But know that he's for you in ways that go far beyond just these 80 years. This is what the Dutch reformers said back in the 1500s, 1600s. These cats came up with a thing called the Belgic Confession of Faith. Man, I love it. I read it all the time. It was primarily written by a guy named Guido, <laughs> which just makes it awesome. <laughs> Guido de Brez. I, I guess he was Dutch, although it sounds kind of Italian to me. I don't know. But anyway, this is what Guido and his merry band of Dutch reformers wrote in the Belgic Confession of Faith in Article chapter. Article 13, the doctrine of God's providence. I've read it here before, but these words fill my heart with hope. Not because they're a man's words, but because they're based on Scripture, and I believe they're so true. These words speak to the providence of God and how he shows his power, even through trial and tragedy. It says, we believe that this good God, after he created all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. Yet God is not the author of, nor can he be charged with the sin that occurs. For his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he arranges and does his work very well and justly, even when the devils and wicked men act unjustly. We do not wish to inquire with undue curiosity into what he does that surpasses human understanding and is beyond our ability to comprehend. But in all humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God, which are hidden from us, being content to be Christ's disciples so as to learn only what he shows us in his word without going beyond those limits. This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father. He watches over us with fatherly care, keeping all creatures under His control, so that none of the hairs on our heads, for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this thought we rest, knowing that He holds in check the devils and all our enemies who cannot hurt us without his permission and will. For that reason, we reject the damnable air of the Epicureans, some Greek philosophers of his day, who say that God involves himself in nothing and leaves everything to chance. Friends, when I read that, my heart swells with confidence and joy. And don't believe that because these Dutch reformers wrote that 500 years ago. Believe that because that truth is based on the Bible. It's based on Ephesians 1.11 that says that God works all things, all things according to the counsel of of his will. So anxious and weary Christian, be encouraged. A few other applications for the Christian, and we're approaching a election year. And uh, well, that, that just seems to bring out the worst in us, doesn't it? <laughs> it just seems to bring out the worst of us, to pin all of our hopes in the uh, rise to power of a certain political party. Friends, I think Christians should be involved in local politics and national politics. I think you should vote. I think you should vote early. And I think you should vote often if they'll let you. <laughs> they do it in Chicago. Might as well 
Be politically active, man. Support politicians that are better than others in lining themselves up with God's ways. Friends, as Christians, as a display to this world, we need to be careful about how we engage elections and political campaigns. God is sovereign. George W. Bush was the president because God put him there. Barack Obama is the president because God put him there. Whoever is the president after November of 2012 will be the president because God in his sovereign kindness is working all things together for his glory. Selah. All right, let's move on to the next one. For the complacent and self-absorbed Christian, and oh, this is me, listen. What is, what is God's power and the power of the resurrection as a display of his power and then that power that's for me, what does this tell the complacent and self-absorbed Christian like me? It reminds me that God is not only all-powerful, but his glory and purposes are why you and I exist. My money, my time, my gifts are not mine to squander on my own temporary pleasures. God has loved me and God has gifted me. God has loved you and he has gifted you so that those things would refract and turn back to him. Not so that we can waste our life on recreation. For the person who is struggling with sin that never seems to go away. For the young man who is wrestling with flesh. For the young woman who is wrestling with self-esteem. For the middle-aged man who has been battling that flesh or temptation for so long and he's making no progress and you're feeling hopeless. The truth of God's all-powerful work through the resurrection directed towards you gives you hope because, as we will read about in a couple weeks in Ephesians chapter 2, the same power that has raised Jesus has also raised us. And so even in your battle with sin, even in your battle with sin, struggling Christian, God is showing his power through that and is more than able to give you. And this is how he does it. He doesn't do it by by beating us over the head and causing us to come up with a longer list of things we cannot do. See, some of us in this room have bought into this broken notion of legalism. Christianity is legalism, that it's just a list of things that God says we can't do. And because we kind of grew up in the Bible Belt, we sort of know that we need to become Christians and know we need to go to heaven. And so, but gosh, isn't this life kind of joyless and pleasureless? And gosh, that, maybe that's your sort of instinctive view of Christianity. Friends, that's wrong. The message of Christianity is not that God just comes to save us for our begrudging begrudging submission, but that he saves us so that we can actually walk in real pleasure and joy. Everything else is a counterfeit. Everything that's outside of God's plan, whether it's money or sex or power or whatever, anything else that competes with it is not something that God is withholding from us so that we can just sort of have a joyless existence. But what he has for us is better. And the moment we get that, our ability to fight sin is just fueled with divine grace. Augustine, the the church father in the 300s, this beautiful quote in his confessions, and Augustine wrestled with sexual immorality for much of his adult life and didn't become a Christian until into his early 30s. And he wrote this about 
the day that God really broke into his life and turned him away from his struggle with sin. He said in his book, Confessions, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. Oh, that's so good. The person that's struggling with sin that's beating them down, there's a sweeter, sovereign pleasure that wants to capture our hearts. And finally, for the person who has not yet trusted in Jesus. For these past few moments, have you got a picture of how good he is? How powerful he is? That he is sovereign? And that he's not just some sort of white-bearded deity up in the heavens with a flower plucking it, saying that I hope he loves me, I hope he not. He's not, he's not, he's not sort of sitting back idly by wondering whether or not you will decide. I mean, in your 40 years of wisdom, I mean, really think about this. I just, sometimes when I'm talking to an unbeliever, I just ask them, I say, really? <laughs> I mean, really? They come up with all these arguments and rational thoughts about why, I mean, okay, so, so wait a minute now. In your 22 years of wisdom, college kid, who's deciding to kind of live how you want and just sort of, sort of engage philosophy and kind of just really... You're 22, you're banking on the wisdom that you've accrued? Really? I mean, I'm not being sarcastic. I, wanna, I mean, I want to engage you if, you if you don't know Jesus. I want to talk to you as long as, as long as it takes. But do you see what this scripture clearly says? Is that God is not just some sort of grandpa. He's not some sort of Western cultural ethic. This isn't morality. We're, the Bible gives us a picture. The Bible is not another option of a way to live. The Bible presents the good news of the sovereign creator of everything who right now commands you to turn and trust in Jesus. Right now. Do you see that, friend? The supreme authority of everything commands everybody to turn and trust in Jesus. And here's where it gets so good and unbelievable. is the very thing that he commands you to do, he, he gives you. He's not asking you to get better or do better. He's not asking you to clean yourself up. He's, if, if you hear his voice right now, if you hear that little voice in your heart that's saying, no, I, I'm not right with God, that is, I think, clear evidence that the Holy Spirit is opening your eyes so that you would see this hope, so that you would trust in him. What do you do now? Don't go rationalistic. Don't think about things that you need to do. That's not the message of Christianity. Look to Jesus Look to Jesus. The Bible says that we must repent and turn from trusting in ourselves and believe in Jesus. Do it right now. Look, it's a gift that he gives. It's a gift that he gives. Friend, look to Jesus. This is good news. You're not looking to one who says you have to meet these preconditions before you can come to me. You're going to the one. You're looking to the one who is all-powerful, all-supreme, who alone can save you, who right now is opening your heart so that you will trust in him. 
That's unbelievably good news, friend. And so if you came into this room and you knew you weren't a Christian, friends, you don't have a list of things that you have to do. You don't have a list of philosophical arguments that you need to satisfy. You must trust in Jesus. And if you came into this room thinking that you were a Christian and by God's sovereign grace, he brushed away the scales from your eyes so that you realize you aren't, do you realize what good news? Don't stay in your conviction. Don't walk out of here discouraged. The very fact that he opened your eyes to the fact that you're not a Christian means that you're in the process of becoming one. So look to Jesus right now. Don't fill out a card. Don't wait for me to give you some words to recite. Look to Jesus right now. Right now. Believe in him. This is what the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. This is what it means to be a Christian. Paul says, Thessalonians, I know that you believed in Jesus because you turned from idols and you looked to Jesus. Turn away from yourself and look to Jesus right now. I'm not asking you to come to a way of living. I'm not asking you to come to a Western ethic. I'm not asking you to come to a religion. I am pleading with you to bow down to the creator of all things who alone can give you what your heart needs. Do it right now. Right now, believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. And if that's you, friends, I would love to speak with you after this service. I, there are people here in this room that are Christians that would love to speak with you. If that's you, I'm not going to make you do anything right now that would, would cause you any hesitation. I'm just saying maybe write down on the card. I, I'm trusting in Jesus today for the first time. And give us your name so we can follow up with you and help you walk for him. Do it right now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words. Do what only you can do. Stir the affections of Christians in this room. Lord, cause people to pass from death to life for your great glory and the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.